ahead and open up your Bibles to Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9. Again, it's good to see everyone out this evening. Good to worship God in song and uh, good to be able to study his word as as much as we can. Um, (laughs) I was thinking earlier uh, this afternoon as I was thinking about the lesson tonight, um, we've had a a few lessons recently as we've been going through the narrative uh, series of the Bible, going through the Old Testament, and I realized there have been a couple of lessons that I have focused a lot more than usual on faith specifically. Uh, We talked about the faith of Rahab. We talked about the faith that it took to, to when they were circling the walls of Jericho, to do that in the first place, but also the vital role, the critical role that faith had in all of that. Uh, incidentally, we're going to be talking about faith tonight again, um, but but maybe more so towards the fact that it, it is not untouchable or invincible to the temptation of doubt and fear. Uh, specifically, I want to focus on how uh, faith can is, is is tempted and how faith can become wary. Uh, especially when things get rough, when stress increases greatly, uh, and sometimes it just, uh, the stress continues to increase, or it just, it it will not, uh, you know, decrease. It just continues at a steady pace. Um, And here in Mark chapter 9, I think is a very helpful and a very beautiful, it's one of my favorite passages because of how beautiful I think it is and how relatable I think it is, where Faith wanes, but what does Jesus wish for the people involved here to learn? For his disciples, for this father that comes to Jesus and, and, and so uh, ready to do whatever Jesus asks, asks of him. Um, and I think it's just a beautiful passage, and uh, <clears throat> especially when you see that the, how relatable it can be. Um, obviously, we're, we don't have uh, a demon possession today where you, we would be in the exact same situation. But I think, especially as we're about to read, when you listen to the language that he uses, I think way more often than sometimes we even care to admit, we are brought to this level of uncertainty and we are brought to this level of just the need to essentially lay it all before God. Um, but how difficult that can be. So <clears throat> let's go ahead uh, and begin before we get into the points by starting in Mark chapter 9, beginning in verse 14. And we'll just read a few verses here. Mark chapter 9, beginning in verse, verse 14. It says, When they came back to the disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and some scribes arguing with them. Immediately when the entire crowd saw him, they were amazed and began running up to greet him. And he asked them, What are you discussing with them? And one of the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought you my son, possessed with a spirit which makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it slams him to the ground and he foams at the mouth and grinds his teeth and stiffens out. I told your disciples to cast it out and they could not do it. And he answered them and said, O unbelieving generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him to me. They brought the boy to him. When he saw him, immediately the spirit threw him into a convulsion, and falling to the ground, he began rolling around and foaming at the mouth. And he asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. It has often thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, 
take pity on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible to him who believes. Immediately, immediately, the boy's father cried out and said, I do believe. Help my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd was rapidly gathering, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You deaf and mute spirit, I command you, come out of him and do not enter him again. After crying out and throwing him into terrible convulsions, it came out, and the boy became so much like a corpse that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus shook, uh, took him by the hand and raised him, and he got up. When he came into the house, his disciples began questioning him privately, Why could we not drive it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot come out by anything but prayer. Now, uh, it, kind of a, a brief little passage there. Uh, it kind of tends to be brief when you look at Mark. Uh, Mark, I, I think, very much focuses on the urgency of the gospel uh, often as you look at these. And so a lot of the time you'll see kind of a more condensed version of some of these stories. And you also see that word immediately come up quite a bit. Uh, again, I think just stressing the urgency uh, that, he, that he's trying to get across when speaking about the gospel, about Jesus. Um, and we'll look at that more in just a moment. But where I want to begin with is just acknowledging the, the notion that faith does struggle at times. And if you listen to the language of the Father there, I think you can see that. Uh, and it doesn't take a, a, a scholar at, you know, with you know, scholar-like um, education to <laughs> comprehend what was going on here. Um, but I do think it's interesting that it's not just the father that Jesus talks about when it comes to this, this unbelieving generation. In verse 19, um, one, one more time in verse 19, he answered them and said, Oh, unbelieving generation, how long shall I put up with you? How long shall I uh, uh, be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Um, <clears throat> I really do believe that this is specifically uh, in... in in, in view or in light of what he was just told by the man. The father brings his boy to the disciples. And the disciples cannot do it. They, they fail to a degree. Well, not to a degree. They absolutely fail uh, to, to cleanse the boy of the demon. And it takes Jesus specifically. Now, what I want to ask is, why couldn't the disciples drive out the demon? Was it because they just had no capability whatsoever? Well, just a couple of passages very quickly. First of all, in Mark chapter 6, a few chapters prior to this, in verse 7, Jesus, in the limited commission, it says, He summoned the twelve and began to send them out in pairs and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. Luke chapter 9, beginning in verse 1, says, He called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all the demons and to heal diseases. And He sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to perform healing. It was not because they lacked the authority which is a big thing. It also was not that they lacked the power to do so. Jesus had given them both. He gave them the power and the authority of, of, of God to uh, cleanse people of the demons of, of diseases. And so it wasn't that they just were not capable whatsoever. But as you see in the text, as, as Jesus says, I think it is because of unbelief. In verse 19, from the very outset, he makes it clear. He doesn't really mince words. Unbelieving generation. Now, we would look at this, I think, initially and think, I, I mean, I don't know if it's, it, if it's actually unbelief. I mean, it, it, clearly, they have a good level of faith. I mean, this is a part the 12 apostles that we're talking about here, the, the 12 that closely followed Jesus throughout his ministry. And, and that would even uh, do uh, amazing miracles, as we already have seen, that they were given the authority to do. 
And so I don't know if it was actually like, you know, absolute unbelief. Well, remember what this word means. We're not just talking about a mere assent to facts or a mere acceptance of facts. This is talking about uh, 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 both (laughs) belief in that degree, but, you know, mixed in, harmonizing with trust in God. Um, And I think that is what they lacked. It was due to little faith. And that um, notion comes up a couple of times. First of all, in Matthew chapter 17, in the parallel account of this, it says the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, why, why could we not drive it out? And he said to them, because of the littleness of your faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. And nothing will be impossible to you. But this kind does not come out except by prayer and fasting. And so here is the parallel account, and I, and I think that this really gets to the heart of the matter. It's not like he was unclear. I mean, he, he, uh, in verse 19, he says, Un- unbelieving generation. But um, that doesn't just mean that they outright didn't believe in God whatsoever. No, it's, it's a matter of trust as well. They were given the authority. They were given power. And yet, with both of those things, what we find is faith can struggle, and it can fail. Not because, of, not because of the littleness of God's power or, or even the assurance that God gives us, but rather the littleness of, of our faith because of our own inadequacies. And so I think that that's something to know as you look at this story. Well, beyond that, again, I just want to reemphasize, he incidentally does not say that they had no faith whatsoever. Um, it, he, he just says that they are guilty of unbelief. Um, and I would just suggest that unbelief is easier than sometimes we give it credit for. In Numbers chapter 20, very quickly, well, we won't stay here for very long, but Numbers chapter 20, this is the story where both Moses and Aaron, I mean, they fail. As they're leading the people into, uh, throughout the wilderness, closer and closer to the promised land. In Numbers chapter 20, <clears throat> they essentially are grumbling yet again that's the congregation of Israel and Moses and Aaron have had to take this over and over and over again um, and and so you can imagine the frustration that would immediately begin uh, to, to just <laughs> rise exponentially uh, from their standpoint but in Numbers chapter 20 as they're grumbling with them God uh, gives Moses a commandment now it is like the commandment that was given in Exodus chapter 17 which was to strike the rock and the water would come this time instead of striking the rock he was supposed to speak to it and there was actually a great deal of importance in in just you know what we would say in the minute details because in his anger and even a little bit more than that, which we'll look at, Moses strikes the rock. I want to look at verse 11 very quickly and, and see what God has to say about this, or verse 12, rather, in Numbers chapter 20. What does the Lord say to Moses and Aaron? Because you have not believed me to treat me as holy in the sight of the sons of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. Now, clearly there was the need to obey the command, uh, even in the minute details That was absolutely necessary. But what led them to that point? What God reveals is it was unbelief. Now, you'd look at Moses and Aaron and you'd think, they're guilty of unbelief? If they're guilty of unbelief, uh, 
I think it's a lot easier, uh, or maybe we, we are guilty of it much more so than, than we have realized in the past, perhaps. And so it, it is not just, as, as we've already indicated, that there's just no belief whatsoever, that there's no faith whatsoever, but it does mean that we can, we can be a, a, a devoted servant of God and yet be guilty of unbelief, guilty of the same thing. And, and just remember the consequences of that kind of unbelief. And so we don't, want to, we don't want to go to one extreme and say, well, it just means that there was never any, any uh, trusting faith there. But we also don't want to go to the other extreme to say that, well, it, it doesn't really matter that much. Let's just trivialize it. You don't trivialize it because it was this that made, uh, uh, that made it to where Moses and Aaron were not allowed to enter the promised land. Um, and so that unbelief can have dire consequences. But it seems to be uh, that, that the, this... Unbelief is, is that the temptation here is most potent in the midst of, again, just the heightened circumstances when, when the stress increases, particularly as you look back in Matthew, two different accounts, particularly it is most potent in the midst of storms. Um, Matthew chapter 8 in verse 24 beginning. It says, Behold, there was a great storm on the sea so that the boat was being covered with the waves, but Jesus himself was asleep. Think about the peace. <laughs> Think about the confidence that it would take for, for the boat to be rocking. And, and all the disciples are terrified, uh, but Jesus is, is sound asleep. In verse 25, they came to him and woke him saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. He said to them, Why are you afraid, you men of little faith? Then he got up and rebuked the winds and the sea, and it became perfectly calm. The men were amazed and said, what kind of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? And so here's one instance where this littleness of faith comes up. It is when things are going very fast. Everything, the world is on fire around us, and we're just trying to figure out what to do. Um, and here they are guilty of that littleness of faith. Once more, in Matthew chapter 14, beginning in verse 29, again, there's, uh, the disciples are in the boat. Jesus comes to them as he's walking on water. They, they, they think it's a ghost. And he calls out to them. He says, it's me. Um, now, Peter is, is wanting to go out and walk with, with Jesus. And so uh, Jesus says, come, in verse 29. And Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came toward Jesus. But seeing the wind, he became frightened. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus stretched out his hand and took hold of him and said to him, You have little faith. Why did you doubt? When they got into the boat, the wind stopped. Now, I will just say that I think it, it, we need to, first of all, at least acknowledge, recognize that Peter had enough faith to get out and walk on the water with Jesus. When Jesus said, Come, that's what he did. Um, and so... I, I don't want to overlook that. Sometimes I think we, we, can, we can dog on Peter a little bit too quickly and a little too much. He did have at least a good level of faith to be out there in, in the first place. But what happens? What is the cause of, of his, his sinking? Well, at one point, he was looking at Jesus. But then at another point, his focus shifted. His attention shifted, and he started looking at the winds. He started looking at the waves around him, and that, that is the moment that he began to sink. And I think that there's uh, some, some application for us there because in each case that you see uh, this, this notion of, of little faith, that it was fear that drove that faith out. Fear tends to be uh, that numbing and, and forgetful temptation that will 
that can override faith, that can uh, not override faith, but just help us forget it for a moment. It, it immediately tries to take our focus, our attention away from the only one that can keep us from sinking. Uh, and so the, the, the focus obviously needs to stay on Jesus. But all of that just to say, it can be so extremely easy to fall into this temptation. Particularly as you think about the, the unbelief here that the, the, the apostles were guilty of, as, as Jesus says in Mark chapter 9. But all that being said about the apostles, and even as we look more into the Father's response here, all that being said, faltering faith does not mean dead faith. And I just I hope we've emphasized this as we've gone through this point. Just because we struggle, that does not mean that we are just a, just a reprobate, that we are just completely depraved of mind. No, this is going to happen. And we need to recognize that because when it does, we can't have people that think, Oh, well, this just means I'm completely lost. I'm completely unsafe. No, you're going to struggle. The, the real issue is, are you going to continue to sink or are you going to call out like Peter? Are you going to continue to sink? Let yourself continue to sink. Or are you going to refocus, reshift your uh, attention back onto Jesus? Coming back to Mark chapter 9 in verse 24. Mark chapter 9 in verse 24, <clears throat> or 22 beginning. It says, uh, as, as the man is telling Jesus what, what, is, what has happened since childhood uh, of his son, that, that the demon has tried to harm him and hurt him. At the end of verse 22, he says, but if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. Jesus says to him, if you can, if you can, all things are possible. And you can kind of hear the, the, uh, maybe the, the purposeful shock in his voice. What do you mean, if? Of course I can. This is the son of the living God. This is God manifested in the flesh. People have watched this man literally heal people of, 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 uh, of, of heal a paralytic. Someone who has been bedridden their entire life and they were able to not just stand up and, and you know, kind of regain their strength. But immediately they were healed to the point where they could pick up their bed and walk home. People have seen him heal demons before or exercise demons before. So what's, what's the issue here? <laughs> Again, I don't think that the man just ha, has no faith whatsoever, no trust that, that Jesus can do this. But here's a moment where it is so easy, it is so easy to get lost in the emotion. And I think that's the real issue is, is we need to train ourselves to not get lost in the emotion. But it would be very easy here to do so. And in that emotion, uh, he, he, he expresses some level of concerning doubt. And Jesus brings him back. And I think that there's something there, too. Sometimes we, we look at people in those kinds of um, just, just momentary stupor, and we wonder you know, how gentle we need to be, or maybe we even kind of give people the side eye when maybe they're a bit more harsh than we would have been. But here Jesus is rebuking the man. What are you talking about, if I can? And the man needed that rebuke. And, and the beautiful language that he uses, I, I know you can. I, help my unbelief. Have you ever had a moment of, of um, solitude where you were praying to God and you had to say some of the very same words? I, I know you're able to do this, but I am struggling. <laughs> I think you see this time and time again in the Psalms. That's why I think the Psalms are so beautiful because here you have men Man like David, 
who is incredibly faithful and is incredibly righteous, is a man after God's own heart, and even he is using language that says, I'm struggling and I need help. And I think we need to take something from that. You look at um, different passages uh, where, where people struggle like that. I think especially about John chapter 11. We're not going to read the whole thing, but John chapter 11. Here is another situation, but not just where someone has been uh, taken captive by a demon, but rather you have death and the death of a loved one. John chapter 11, Jesus, as he's coming back to, to where Lazarus has died and been buried, you have the two sisters, Martha and Mary, and, and, and they just speak so, so beautifully to Jesus. Martha just re-emphasizing the faith that she has in him. She believed in Jesus, but there's still a little bit of struggle there. In, at the beginning in chapter uh, 11, in verses 17 through 27, she comes to Jesus. I, I, I know, I know that he will be resurrected one day. That's essentially how that conversation ends. Later, Jesus says, all right, Lazarus, come, for, come forth. He says, roll the, to, uh, the stone away from the tomb. And she comes up and says, Jesus, he's going to, be, he's going to have already begun to stink. This, I don't know. This could be embarrassing. I don't know if this is a good idea. And Jesus has to bring her back. I am the resurrection. Didn't, didn't you say earlier, didn't you say just a moment ago that you believed in me? That you know that I am the son of the living God. I think Mary's conversation with Jesus is even more striking. Uh, beginning in verse 30. It says, Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha met him. Then the Jews who were with her in the house and consoling her, when they saw that Mary got up quickly and went out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Therefore, when Mary came where Jesus was, she saw him and fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled and said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews were saying, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man also from dying? So Jesus again began deeply, uh, being deeply moved within, came to the tomb. Um, and we'll stop there. Again, I, I, I think it's, Striking, first of all, just in looking at how Jesus is affected by the sorrow of, of his, his, uh, by those that he loves, by the, the, the lost sheep that surround him. That's, that's moving, and that should be touching to us when we see God affected like that. But especially in what Mary says, this didn't have to happen. If you had been here, all of this could have been averted. If you had been here, he would never have even had to die. The thing about that is, it was absolutely true. <laughs> and I think you even hear that sometimes today. People, you know, when you go to a funeral of, 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 uh, to, to support someone who's lost a loved one, support someone who has lost someone very close to them, uh, people always say stupid things because they just don't really think through what they're trying to say. Sometimes it's just better to say nothing at all. Just be there. But, but sometimes people try to say things to help. And, and you know, they, they end up saying things that I think are a bit more discouraging than anything. Because you look at someone who is struggling with this reasoning of why in the world, why in the world did this have to happen? 
And, and they're just trying to, you know, come to terms with this in their own mind. And here someone comes up and says, well, you know what? God has a plan for everything. There's a reason that God did this. Now, sometimes, I, I mean, all the time, I think it's foolish to put a purpose to something that we have not give, been given direct revelation from God why this has happened. So maybe we just need to be a little bit more cautious about how we approach things like that, say things like that. But... The issue here is, I think, the same with Mary. People understand that God could have stopped it. God is the creator of everything. He could have absolutely healed this per person of their ailment. He could have absolutely uh, taken away the need for this just painful, for a humiliating death. And so I think people often have that struggle of, of Mary saying, I, I know that you could have stopped this. The question is, why did it have to happen in the first place? Mary trusted Jesus. But even with that faith, she did not understand why this was going on. And frankly, we're going to be left there sometimes. I don't know why it had to happen. We're going to be left like at times where Job was. There's not one indication throughout the whole book of Job that he was uh, given any... Uh, idea of the conversation at the beginning of Job where, where Satan is trying to, uh, being the accuser as always, he's, and the adversary as always, he is trying to basically uh, speak to God to try and get, uh, to, 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 to try and prove that, that he is only obeying God, that he is only faithful to God because he's receiving all these blessings. Ultimately, the adversary fails. I mean, that's, that's one of the main things you pick up is, is he does not have the victory. But that does not mean that Job goes unscathed. That does not mean that the devil does not do much significant damage. Um, and yet through all of that, Job is not given uh, any revelation by God that this is why this is happening. I've, I've chosen you to suffer as a servant, as an innocent servant. Well, sometimes we're going to have to be left with that and we are going to have to have hopefully the same level of faith of Martha and Mary that I, I know, I know that you are the son of God. I know that you have a reason. And I'm, I, maybe I'll never understand it, but I know at the very least that uh, in whom I have believed in the words of Paul as he's writing to Timothy. Well, going beyond that, faith can struggle. But now I just want to look at a few, uh, a couple uh, points of application, and then the lesson will be yours, specifically in how we are to get past that struggle. And, and as you look at Mark chapter 9 and look at the man who, who is, is sick to death about his son, the, 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 uh, the, the uh, I, I don't know why I can't think of the word here, but just the, the predicament that his son is in and the struggle, the inner turmoil that he would have felt with that, I think one thing that you find in terms of application that he did right is the fact that he at least went to God about it. He didn't know exactly what he needed to do, but at the very least, he went to God. And not only that, but when he was uh, enlightened about his own shortcomings, when he was enlightened about the present failure, he confessed it. He didn't say, hey, I, hey you're putting words into my mouth here. No, he said, no, I, I know, I know, I misspoke. I just need you to help me here. Um, and so a faith that excels is one that confesses the distance from where uh, we should be. 
And when we do recognize that there is a distance, when we do recognize that we have fallen short, well, we understand that we, like this man at this moment, have an advocate. That we have Jesus ready to listen, ready to answer in prayer. And we need to remember that fact, that especially for those who are, are, are Christians and are a part of his kingdom. As it says in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 1, we have that advocate that we can go to. And so we don't have to wait and, and wonder what's going to happen. We can go and we can start trying to reshift that focus back onto him. 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 6 beginning, it says, Therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. I think sometimes people struggle with this because... Um, very simply, they do not want to verbalize at times what they feel towards God. Now, I'm not saying that, that we need to go as far as Job's friends did at times and say just perverted things about God's justice, about God's character. Um, but we do need to be more like the psalmists, where when there's a doubt, when the confidence wanes, we go to God and we tell him, I, I am struggling with this. And I need your help. And Jesus is willing to keep hold of us, even in the midst of that little faith. It's not like when he tells the disciples, unbelieving generation, I'm through with you. No, he says, how long am I going to have to put up with this? And he just has that long-suffering, that patience. We need to pick up on that and, and be encouraged by that. Because here is God saying, I want you to cast all your burdens onto me. And, and yet, so many times, I think people ignore that or neglect that because well we need to save face guess what god already knows god already knows and so we need to come to him and be honest so that way we can actually move on uh, and not let bitterness or resentment build up within us well going beyond that faith that excels is one that strives to know god this kind of confidence this kind of assurance is only given to those who already i i would think have a knowledge of God. Um, the falling short, the Father shows in action and in word that he believes Jesus is the Christ, just like Martha, just like Mary. Incidentally, just like the rest of the apostles. He's already shown that. And it's not like everything is undone, but at the same time, <laughs> that, that, that foundation of who he is is necessary. Because if it's not there, the conversation's not even going to be had. You're not even going to go to Jesus in the first place. Um, when you think about faith, a lot of the time people, uh, whether it be debates between atheists and, and those who, who are proponents of, of the Bible and are trying to uh, just basically defend the existence of God, a lot of times the, this word comes up, and as they define it, especially the secularists, they would define it as essentially blind faith, as something where we are just, no matter what facts we're given, no matter what people tell us, we are just going to reject it all because, you know what, we believe something and, and that's that, and we don't care about living in reality, we don't care about the facts. Now that's the way the, secu the secular uh, atheist would try to depict what faith looks like. But I would just say, faith is not blind. Um, over in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning in verse 6, it says, Therefore, being always of good courage and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, 
not by sight. We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. Now, incidentally, he, is, he says we walk by faith, not by sight. He is not saying that we just absolutely reject anything that anyone ever says and that really we have a, a baseless faith, that there's no reason to have this faith other than just plain old passions, other than plain old, you know what, this is what my mom taught me and that's what I'm going to stick with. This isn't blind faith that he's talking about. What he is talking about is that confidence that is only attained, that is only sustained on the foundation of what we know. I know that Jesus is the Christ. And that is the foundation. That's, that's, that's what keeps us tethered in those moments, in, in the midst of storms. That's what keeps us tethered when, uh, like Peter, maybe we are close to sinking. And maybe we, we even do sink for a moment. But when we can't see, we rely on what we know. Because like Job, we're not going to see it all. We're just not given that privilege. And that's okay. <laughs> um. But just because we rely on what we know, that doesn't mean that we, are, we just have blind faith. In fact, this happens all the time. There's, uh, I was just in the hospital, and there was a lot of big words that were being thrown around. And I'll just be honest with you, I, I retained like not even a quarter of it. <laughs> because it was a lot of medical jargon, and you know what? It just right over my head. And, and uh, in fact, it was going to slow the process down. I learned very quickly if I tried to understand absolutely everything that was going to be said. And you know what? They're able to, the doctors and the nurses, even Paige, because she's had some of that education, she's, she's able to understand that because, I mean, they have that, that foundation already set. I do not. Now, does that mean that I know nothing? Does that mean that when we go into the doctor's office and they tell us, you're going to have to participate in a very invasive surgery in an operation that's not going to feel you know the best now we don't know exactly why that is we don't know exactly uh what uh function of the body that is is necessarily failing how this operation is going to necessarily you know exactly work to to better that we just trust the education of the doctor now you you look at that doctor and, and you ask is, is it going to be painful is it going to hurt the doctor says, yes, it very much will. Now, because of that, do people usually tend to say, well, then just forget it. Absolutely not. Or, or especially when it comes to the knowledge, because I don't necessarily understand how the liver is supposed to work. Does that mean that I'm going, you, you know, apparently, and maybe I am wrong about this, you can correct me if I am afterwards, but uh, Hawk had jaundice, and so he had to stay under the blue lights for over 24 hours. It was miserable. Um, but he, apparently, there's, when, when a child has jaundice, it, it's something that has to do with the liver, and, and it needs to, the numbers need to be fixed. I don't understand all of that. But because I don't understand that, would it be reasonable for me to look at the doctor and say, um, no, we're just going to take him and we're going to go home. Well, he's got some issues, and if, and if this goes, you know, unoperated un, uh, un on, if this goes unnoticed for a time, untouched for a time, then it could cause bigger issues. Well, I don't really understand what all of this means, so no, we're just going to take him home. No, that'd be silly. That'd be, to a degree, neglect. 
And it would be foolish on my part as a father, as a head of the household, to, to just say, because I don't understand how all that works, just forget it. Now, does, since I took the advice of the doctor, does that mean that I'm just going out on blind faith? No. But what it does mean is that though I can't see everything, there, there are things that I know that are foundational that I can put my trust in. And so it's not just random, uh, uh, a, a blind leap of faith, as sometimes people uh, would try to suggest. Again, you look at the psalmist's uh, language time and time again. Psalm 88, in verse 1, O Lord, the God of my salvation, I have cried out by day and in the night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. Psalm 88 is one of the darkest psalms in all of the book. I mean, it literally ends with the word darkness. And it almost seems like there's no ray of sunlight. It seems like there is, there is no light at the end of the tunnel, except, oh, wait, maybe there is, but it's a train. <laughs> I mean, it's just, it's, it's all dark and it's all sorrowful. But I think that the hope, the ray of sunshine, that, 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 that tether, it's at the very beginning. Where is he going to? Who is he going to? There's no one else that I can go to but you. You alone have the words of eternal life. <clears throat> Psalm 77. I shall remember the deeds of the Lord. Surely I will remember your wonders of old. This is after a few verses of saying, I, I don't know why this is happening, and I'm struggling, and I, and I, and I just I need, I need help to get past the current struggle or the current dark hour. And so he says, I will meditate on all your work and muse on your deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your strength among the peoples. So when he doesn't know exactly what's going on, where does he go? I, I remember all of the deeds that you have done. I know how you have delivered your people in the past. And I think at times that's the best thing that we can do is, is just think about all of the victories that God has brought himself and to his people. And so maybe that's the main thing that we do need to focus on. Well, finally, a faith that excels is one that fasts and prays. Now, I think we've kind of lost some of the meaning behind this of, of, of fasting, especially, especially in our culture. You, you look at me and you realize that uh, I, you may have a, just a mere scholarly understanding of that. You clearly don't practice it, and you'd be right. What? I do think that there is, um, there is some benefit into understanding what this looked like, especially in the first century. And I do think that, incidentally, that there are some um, benefits to even trying to uh, do that today. That's for another time. But fasting and praying, what does that betoken? It betokens a leaning on God. It betokens a trust on him. It, it, it denotes devotion. Um, and so what it means, what I mean by that is leaning on God over all things and everyone else. In verse 28 of Mark chapter 9, verses 28 and 29, when he came into the house, his disciples began questioning him privately, why could we not drive it out? Jesus says to him, this kind cannot come out by anything but prayer. And in fact, you look at the, the parallel account and it says by prayer and fasting. Um, when, when he says that this, this cannot come out by anything but prayer. Do you think that Jesus only meant, well, you just had to, you had to put your hands over the child and you had to give this very specific verbal incantation? I don't think that's what he meant by that. <laughs> I think 
What he meant by that is what we've been indicating all along, is devotion, is trust. It is not just, you know, here's a speech that you go through every single time, and every single time it's going to work. You know, we talked about how fear tends to drive out faith. If fear drives out faith, then prayer and fasting has to do with the strengthening of it. And, and Jesus did that constantly. He was a good example of someone who went in solitude, not just, just to get a break from everybody, but specifically to go and be with his father, to, to focus more on his father and that relationship. And I think, incidentally, that is how he got his strength. You even see that in the garden, I think, in real time. As he's speaking to his disciples, they, they just continue to fall asleep while he is praying to God. Out of all of the people there in the Garden of Gethsemane, we know that Jesus is about to be put on the cross. The disciples, they are not going to be put on the cross in the next couple of hours. But what do you see each party doing? Jesus, who we, he needs the physical strength. He, can, he needs all the strength he can get, all the strength that he can muster. And so we would look at that and say, okay, well, the best thing for him then is to go ahead and fall asleep and try to get as much energy as possible. And what he shows is that's wrong. What, what gives us the most strength? What gives us the proper strength? It is going to God in prayer. And he even says that to the disciples. Or can you not wait? Can you not pray with me? One hour? Can you, can you not just <laughs> trust me in this? And, and I think it's kind of lost on them to the degree. But I wonder if they had just taken Jesus', Jesus advice, if they had just obeyed him in this manner, I wonder if they would have been able to have been shown in a better light than Jesus being arrested and they flee. Instead of being just painful memories that would only amplify the shame and amplify the humiliation, amplify the pain of being on the cross, they could have been boons of strength. But I think a part, a part of the reason that they, could, that they didn't do that, whoops, hopefully I didn't just break this thing. I think a part of the reason they didn't do that is because they didn't do as Jesus said and, and go and, and pray like he was doing to get that kind of strength. So sometimes people will say, well, what, when they're going through something, very physical circumstances, and they say, how is praying going to help? What? What is praying going to do when I could go out and I could do all of these, I could do X, Y, and Z, and I could check the boxes on a big, long list? Well, as it turns out, praying can do quite a bit. As you see with Jesus answering his disciples there. Now, I would just say, as we talk about that struggling faith, you may be a Christian, and you may be struggling for a more confident faith. The question is, what can we do with that? I, w I would just go back to what we were just looking at uh, in the Garden of Gethsemane. Don't forget what Jesus says about the encouraging, worshipful acts of prayer. If you haven't been engaging in that, start now. If you begin to be hindered in that, continue in it and reshift our focus back onto him. And I would just say that you have brethren here that would love to help you in that. If that's something that you desire from your brethren, let us know. If you're not a Christian... Understand that prayer, as powerful a tool it may be, and as powerful as, as Jesus has spoken about it, it is not enough to cleanse you of your demons. What you must have first is the authority and the power of Jesus. So the question is, have you been washed in uh, the blood of Jesus to become in contact with that authority and that power?
Have you been washed from your sins so that way you can have that relationship? So that way you do have an advocate in heaven waiting, uh, waiting to answer for you. If you need that assurance, if you need help, assistance to be uh, added into the, his kingdom, to be washed into his blood, we would love to help you in that. If you are subject to the invitation by any means, please let your need be made known as we stand and as we sing.